Hello, and welcome back to the Build Smart podcast with Claire, uh, where we discuss new and innovative ways to create healthier, more efficient buildings for occupant well-being and operational excellence. To access this episode and others, check out Build Smart with Claire wherever you listen to podcasts or visit the i-claire.com website for more information. I'm your host, Harry Watson, and today we have a very special guest, David Shirk, an ASHRAE Distinguished Lecturer and the Director of Business Development at Global Plasma Solutions. Hello, David. How are you today? Harry, I'm great and uh, thrilled to be here today with you and your audience. Thank you. We're, we're definitely glad to have you and your expertise. So just so our audience can get to know you a little bit better, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, maybe where you started out in the industry and what's kind of led you to your position today? Sure, sure. Well, well, currently, as you mentioned, I am business development manager for Global Plasma Solutions out of Charlotte, North Carolina. We are a manufacturer of needlepoint bipolar ionization technology. I actually started in the industry 40 years ago this year uh, as uh, a commercial sales engineer with Carrier Corporation right out of college. Progressed through the ranks, if you will, at Carrier. I, at one time, I served as their national uh, healthcare strategic account manager. I say national, it was actually a global position. Position, calling on healthcare clients, so hospitals, end users, facilities engineers, and then engineering professionals that uh, cater to that market as well, and design hospitals and healthcare facilities. And, and through those 40 years of tenure in the industry, I also worked for a couple of other manufacturers of HVAC products and equipment. So I've served for three of the largest in the world. At one point in time, I was uh, located in Houston, Texas. I, I called on the Texas Medical Center, which is arguably the largest uh, medical institution in the world. And that's kind of where I got my expertise with regards to healthcare. And that's where I got intimately familiar with and involved with indoor air quality technologies to serve the healthcare vertical market. Awesome. 40 years. That's great. So yeah, I'm feeling of, every one of them right now. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of experience, a lot of, uh, a lot of expertise I'm sure you've built up over the years. Um, that's it's awesome. been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, that's what's important, I guess. That's what it's all um, about. So um, I guess with regards to your most recent position, what is Global Plasma Solutions or GPS exactly? Um, I know you said they're a manufacturer of needlepoint um, bipolar ionization. Some of our audience m might not be too familiar with that. Can you walk us through a little bit about what this technology entails? Sure, sure. Well, well bipolar ionization in general talks about the the scientific technology, if you will, of imparting a charge of energy to the atoms and molecules in the air. Needlepoint bipolar ionization is a specific way of imparting those ions to the air. It's a patented technology. There's some benefits to it that we may or may not talk about. Doesn't matter. But the point is simply that in the ionization process, there's a device that imparts a charge of energy to those atoms and molecules that I mentioned that are delivered to the space. Bipolar means that those atoms and molecules are both positively and negatively charged. There are no neutrals. Neutrals can't do any work. Uh, positively and negatively charged ions in the air can work to remediate certain pollutants and contaminants, issues of concern in the air. And all we do is impart those ions to the space so that the, the ions in the space then can work on those pollutants at the space level to help create a safer, healthier, and more productive indoor environment for the people that are breathing that air. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack there. It's um, definitely an advanced clean air technology. When it comes to kind of the particles and contaminants that it works against, what are some of the examples of the contaminants or the particles that, that you're looking to remove from the air? Well, really, everything in the air is either a particle or a gas for the most part. And the particles can be things such as viruses, 
uh, SARS-CoV-2, for example, and others, they are definitely a particle. It's no respiratory particle. You know, we, we talk or we sneeze or we talk or we breathe or we sing and we expel these, these aerosols from our lungs into the environment. They then can desiccate and become very small. They're then what's termed a droplet nuclei, but they are still a particle. And um, the issue with those, of course, is that they are very, 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 very small. Very difficult to influence with air motion, very difficult to get out of the space. But along with those, and there are an array of other particles in the space could be things like smokes or allergens or, or uh, just pathogens, uh, microbial contaminants, maybe bacteria or fungus or mold, something of that nature. And all of these particles in the air are an issue of concern. In fact, it's interesting in, the, in a typical cubic foot of indoor air in an office or a school or your home, perhaps, there are some 18 to 20 million of these particles. And you know, when you stop and think about the fact that we spend 90% of our time indoors and we breathe about 400 cubic feet of air every day, it, it, it brings to, to a quick realization that um, those particles in the air that are hazardous are an issue of concern for us. So what we look at doing with needlepoint bipolar ionization is simply trying to reduce the loading of those particles, in particular the pathogens and viruses that are there, to again create air that's healthier for the occupants in the space to breathe. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of a, a big topic of discussion right now is how do we get these indoor spaces as healthy as possible, especially when we're looking to probably reopen in a lot of areas in the you know this year, um, over the next several months, maybe bringing things back to almost full capacity. So it seems like those those particles, contaminants, viruses are kind of more important than ever to start addressing. Well, it um, is, you know, and, and people, quite honestly, they, they, they realize that buildings aren't necessarily as healthy as they could be or should be. You know, I think we're at a point in time where particularly, you know, everybody has become somewhat of an expert in asepsis now, right? We're all, mm -hmm. we've been hammered over the last year about washing our hands and wearing masks and maintaining social distancing. And now the CDC and the WHO have come out and said that, you know, there are definite concerns with regards to SARS-CoV-2 specifically being transmitted indoors between occupants, you know, in, in, in distances further than the safe distancing limits that have been put forth. So people know that when they walk into a building, there may be an issue of concern. And I think truly it's becoming a, a point to where uh, building owners and, uh, and those that employ people inside buildings and want to get those people to walk back through the doors for the first time are going to have to do something indoors that convinces people that it's safe come inside that building. And one of my um, clients said to me, we need to surprise people with something different. And I thought about that and it made sense because, you know, I mean, we have a billion dollar plus sick building industry in this country year after year after year, we always have, or we sure have for a long time. And we need to do something to make people understand that we're going to try to put a little dent in that billion dollar plus number and make these buildings healthier and safer so that when they walk across the threshold for the first time back into those environments and re-engage with people, you know, in close proximity, they feel comfortable about doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely seen kind of an uptick in just the public's awareness of indoor air quality, the, the awareness that, hey, these indoor spaces might not be as safe as they could be, like you said. And I think it's so important for those in, in those roles, you know, the building owners, facility managers, things like that, 
to kind of try to do their best to make people feel confident to, to re-enter. One other thing I'll mention, this is kind of interesting, yeah. and, and I don't have the exact numbers. I wish I'd have known I was going to say this. I would have pulled the report, mm-hmm. but I'm going to get pretty close on this. There was an industry study done by a, a large real estate company, went out and polled. I think it was 10,000 people. And of that 10,000 people, these were office employees that had been, mm-hmm. you know, displaced during the, during the pandemic so far. And they, they interviewed these people and they asked them, you know, do you feel that the, for lack of a better term, the owners of the buildings that you uh, are engaged and work in, do you think they've done everything they can to safeguard the environment mm-hmm. for you while you were there previously? And, and almost 70% of those polled said, no, we do not believe that. Um, they also went forward with some additional questions on what these people expect to be done in those buildings if they are asked to come back and re-engage and, and become involved in those office environments again moving forward. And, and almost 30% of the people surveyed, and I was amazed at this, said that unless something's done in those offices that's different than was being done when they left, they'll quit their job before they'll come back. I thought that was amazing. Very profound study. That, yeah, that's, it's being taken very seriously, and I, as it should be, of course. I just think it's important for people to try their best, you know, to, to at least do some research and to talk to experts on their, their specific situation and kind of try to find the best path forward. When it comes to the needlepoint bipolar ionization, I'm sure you have some, some data or research that you found in, in support of the efficacy of the solution why this technology could be used right now for this application. Would you mind giving us a rundown of any of the, any of the information supporting this? Yeah, I can give you a little bit. We don't have enough time to go through it all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need a week. But yeah. um, you know, I think it's important for, for people to understand that ionization in general is a technology that dates back some 150 years. It's nothing new. It's just evolved considerably from what it was, you know, when Sir Edwards Crookes invented the Crookes tube to what it is now with needlepoint bipolar ionization. There's been some tremendous evolution in that product. The earlier product, and we're talking, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, was what's called uni ionization or unipolar ionizations. They simply imparted negative ions into the air as a method to help actually um, precipitate particulate out of the air in clean room applications. This technology has been used in clean rooms for decades. I'm talking, you know, semiconductor, pharmaceutical, food processing, healthcare clean rooms to make the air really, really, really clean. The issue with it in the past was simply that it also produced ozone and ozone is recognized by the EPA and others as being a toxic gas and a respiratory irritant. And we've learned a tremendous amount about ozone over the past several decades. You know, ozone now is something that, of course, is produced outside. It's an interaction between UV light and certain chemicals in the air. And if you live in bigger cities during the summer, you always have those ozone alert days where they go, come inside, button things up, and, and don't breathe, you know, and that's impossible. But the point is simply that we do not want to be producing ozone inside with technologies that have been designed to make the air better. So the advantage of needlepoint bipolar ionization that has been around for about 14 years now, still considered an emerging technology by some, even after 14 years, is that it most certainly does not produce ozone. It's validated to Underwriters Laboratory Standard 2998, which requires a manufacturer to send their product in, have it put into a test chamber. They will run it over an extended period of time. They put this ozone meter on it that measures down to just minute quantities. In fact, uh, the product cannot emit any more than five parts per billion of ozone over that operational period. If it does, 
it's kicked out the door. If it can pass that stringent standard, it then is validated as being a zero ozone producing device and it's listed on UL's spot website. If, if a consumer or an engineer or anybody listening would want to check a product, any IAQ product that plugs in and, and is electric, it, it should be validated to UL2998 if the person installing it wants to make sure that ozone is not going to be an issue of emission from that product. So you can go to the SPOT, S-P-O-T-U-L website, put in the manufacturer's name and their products will pop up if they have been validated. But in addition to that, needlepoint bipolar ionization also has tested specifically on an array of pathogens and viruses and has been found to be under laboratory testing conditions with documented proof. It's been proven to have efficacy on, on an array of those pathogens and viruses, most specifically of late as of June 2020, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the disease COVID-19. So that has sparked a tremendous issue in this technology and we've been extremely busy trying to uh, respond to a global demand for something that can do exactly that. Gotcha. And so I guess the, the, the reason why it works in the application of COVID-19 is due to the fact that the virus itself has been shown to, I guess it's not an airborne disease by technical definitions, but it has the ability to be transmitted through respiratory droplets through other particles. Is that kind of the understanding? That? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm not a medical doctor. I don't pretend to mm -hmm. be, but I, I probably read the same CDC and WHO and ASHRAE and, and other Purdue University and other credible institutions that are putting out, you know, information, actionable information on this particular issue. And, you know, we're being told that it, of course, is a respiratory disease and it originates in the lungs and, and you can talk or cough or sneeze or breathe or sing. And you, as I mentioned earlier, you will emit aerosols into the ambient air around you, which can take a certain path, right? And some of those, depending on how large they are, may fall out immediately onto a surface. That's what's called a fomite viral issue. And, and if you touch it or come into contact with it physically, it, it can spread if you touch yourself, your mouth, your mm -hmm. nose, whatever the case might be as well. If you're within close proximity to someone that has expelled those larger droplets and it has a viron in it and you're susceptible, you could breathe it and become ill. The issues that we have found of late, and we've known this with other viral issues of concern in the past, this is not news to us in the HVAC industry, but you know, science, until they can specifically prove something, won't come out and state it emphatically, and I understand that, but what the CDC has come out and said of late is simply that those aerosol droplets, the ones that can either fall out or come in contact with you in close proximity can also evaporate. They can desiccate. They can become very, very, very small. And just because they've desiccated or evaporated does not mean that they are not still infectious. They most certainly can be. And they have identified that as a droplet nuclei, as a desiccated particle, it may remain infectious in the air for up to three hours. And that's the issue. Not only is it very, very small and effective for up to three hours, but it's very, very small and difficult to move from the space. So you really need to look at technologies. If you're going to rid the space of that issue, you have to look at technologies that can start in the space, that can actively treat the air in the space to help remediate the issues of concern. And of course, needlepoint bipolar ionization works in the space. It's delivered to the space. It has been shown to be effective at uh, remediating both surface and airborne SARS-CoV-2 viral material in laboratory testing. I think it's super like just appealing right now for people that are looking to get this kind of confidence that, you know, we're doing everything that we can to create the healthiest um, indoor spaces possible. 
Yeah, um, most certainly. And I, I do want to mention, I think this is important. Yes. Filtration is very important. Everybody's talking a lot about filters. You've had guests before and you will in the future that will talk about how important filtration of the air is. And most certainly, you know, choosing the right MERV efficiency of filter, the one that can extract the particles of concern by size out of the air that are your issue are very important and that, you know, requires some expertise in doing it. As well, ventilation, the amount of outdoor air that you bring in, fresh outdoor air, hopefully it's clean, that you use to dilute a space of contaminants. And then of course, the number of air exchanges that you provide to help move or circulate that air is important too. So, you know, ventilation and filtration are the backbone of a healthy building from an HVAC perspective. But then, you know, layering on things that can make them either individually, singularly, or combined more effective might make sense. And those would be advanced IEQ or air cleaning technologies, such as needlepoint bipolar ionization and others. So I just want to make sure this, you know, we're not positioning this as a silver bullet or as the mm -hmm. answer. We are simply positioning it and recommending it as another layer that's mm -hmm. added on the top of things that we know are also effective to try to create the, the largest buffer that we can between the issues in the space, possibly in the air, and the individuals in that space breathing the air. For the audience, it's important to have first a kind of foundation um, when it comes to their HVAC systems or ventilation, air filtration. Those are kind of the real driving, that make the most impact when we're talking Absolutely. about healthy indoor air quality. And then when you bring in additional technologies, they're used as a supplement and as a kind of uh, an edge over top of that to further clean the air. Right. Both the CDC and ASHRAE recommend that when you are vetting those other technologies, make sure that you look for something that has proof of efficacy at specifically treating the issues of concern that you have in the space. And, and again, mm -hmm. it's no different than sizing ventilation air at the, or the right quantity and making sure the MERV efficiency of the filter is correct for the particle of concern that you're trying to get out of the air. If you're going to install some type of a advanced indoor air cleaning technology, whether it's in the space or in the system, make sure number one, that it can do what we're being told needs to be done, treat the space. And that number two, it has proven efficacy with regards to the specific issues of concern. And if SARS-CoV-2 are your issue, you should make sure that technology is effective at, at helping treat it. Awesome. Yeah. And um, I definitely want to touch more on that in a sec, but you name dropped um, an SO by ASHRAE. And I know that you have experience in that organization as um, a lecturer and presenter and things like that. Could you walk the audience through what ASHRAE is and kind of sure. what what your membership with them brings to the table in terms of the expertise and the, the research and stuff like that? Sure. So ASHRAE is A-S-H-R-A-E. It's the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. It's an association I belong to now for 40 years. Um, I am an ASHRAE Distinguished Lecturer, and I sit on a couple of the TC committees, which are the governing bodies that create regulations and standards for the built environment industry. And ASHRAE is a worldwide organization of industry professionals. It's volunteer. It's people like me that, that volunteer their time. And, and, and of course, there are companies out there that, that um, provide resources to ASHRAE so that they can create standards and journals and research and guidance on all things related to heating, air conditioning, ventilation, and refrigeration, specifically uh, things such as code requirements for ventilation and filtration for hospitals and schools and offices and all kinds of vertical market endeavors. Um, so ASHRAE is a, an, a, an elite 
I, I like to say that an elite group of professionals, typically the leaders uh, of their individual organizations that come together and, and as a governing body, if you will, put together these standards and regulations that then may be enacted by various states and regions and jurisdictions to help create better buildings through better HVAC systems through better indoor environments. I hope that, I think that, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think you hit it. (laughs) I hope I hit the nail on kind of, sort (laughs) of on the head. That's my, that's my concept of it anyway. And I'm sticking to it. I mean, I've spoken to um, a lot of members and participants and, you know, committee heads and things like that at ASHRAE. And it, it seems like that's exactly what you guys do, setting the standard for what the built environment should look like. I, I think that's, yeah, it's, it's a great group. And I, love, I just have really enjoyed and love being a part of it these 40 years. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm sure that this technology, needlepoint bipolar ionization, has gained some traction rather quickly during COVID-19. Are there any specific industries or verticals or building types that you see prioritizing this? Yeah. So, you know, we all breathe the same air, right? Mm-hmm. And, and not just here or there, but everywhere. This is a, a yeah. worldwide issue of concern. At the end of the day, we're all human beings and we're all breathing the same air. We all have the same issues and concerns. The way I look at it is any environment I'm in is a critical environment. Mm-hmm. It's one that I have concerns with. And I think everybody listening and and even those that aren't would, would come to that same conclusion. <laughs> Hospitals are a, a major hot spot, if you will, for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the disease COVID-19. The problem with hospitals is it's very difficult. You can't shut down. They're 24-7, 365. And guess what? When you're sick, that's where you go. And it's very hard sometimes to maintain social distancing. And it's very hard for a patient to wear a mask. And I can go on and on and on. So you can imagine why hospitals are critical environments for attempting to do our best at remediating Mm -hmm. those issues of concern. The problem is right now, hospitals, they're so busy and overwhelmed and overburdened that that's been one of the least visited market segments for me as a professional doing what it is I do to try to work with people like that. I know we'll get around to hospitals, but they're just sticking their their thumb in the in the dike trying to plug the hole right now. In addition to that, schools are of major concern. Schools have begun to try to re-engage. Some are doing it successfully. Some have just said, nope, this 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 year's off. We're just going to come back next year. We'll go virtual until then. And we know there's issues with that, not only for the student and the and the uh, and the teachers, but the parents as well, right? nurses and doctors have kids and and they can't stay home you know they got to be at the hospital so it's a tremendous issue in re-engaging schools and students and staff and allowing parents to go back to doing what it is they need to do to pay the bills and save people so that's been a huge market for us schools have been but as well it's others it's it's offices it's restaurants it's it's nursing homes I mean, I, I think I read that the, the percentage is somewhere around 40% of the total overall COVID-19 deaths have been in nursing homes. I think that's a good number. Don't hold me to it. But, but it's a higher number than, than any other vertical that I know of. And so that, of course, is a very important mar- market segment as well. And we've been very busy working with those people. But it's anywhere indoors you breathe air. That's, gotcha. that's where we are. And that's where we're trying to help. Jails are a big one, too. Prisons mm-hmm. and jails, huge. Yeah, yeah. So while there are key segments or building types that are kind of looking into these technologies, it's really wherever we're, we're breathing is where there's going to be, you know, a risk. And so for all of these different types of buildings, what, what do you think is most important for the building owners and the, the building managers looking to create a healthier, safer environment? 
the first thing to do is come in and, and see if what you have is what it should be. All right. So if you have a building that's been designed to certain standards, certain airflows, certain filtration efficiencies, make sure that it really is, you know, commission your building and make sure that it's up to speed with regards to, to how it was originally designed. Then take into account recommendations that are being made by people like the CDC and the WHO and ASHRAE and others that are saying increase ventilation if you can, bring in more outdoor air if it's possible, upgrade filter efficiency if it's possible. The issues, of course, are that it's not always possible. You know, HVAC systems that have to process more outdoor air need to be bigger, typically, because you have to heat and cool, humidify and dehumidify and filter that outdoor air that you bring in. And sometimes the systems just aren't there to do it. And you don't want to lose temperature control inside a building and lose humidity control and have issues with perhaps mold growth and things of that nature. So that's a problem. Upgrading filter efficiency can be an issue as well at times because Typically, higher efficiency filters have higher pressure drops. Those higher pressure drops will reduce airflow through the system, and reduced airflow is the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. As well, the problem with MERV 13 filters, for example, which have been recommended by, um, by several accredited authorities, the issue is getting them. You know, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of renewed interest in, in MERV 13 filters. My understanding last time I talked to someone was it's 20 weeks to get one. <laughs> They're just backlogged, you know, manufacturers can't keep up. So that's an issue as well. You know, regardless, either of those two endeavors may impose an energy penalty on the system and somebody's got to pay the energy bill at the end of the day. And I'm not suggesting that we should trade off safety for energy, but there's economics involved, you know. Sometimes building owners just can't afford to make those upgrades or those improvements and take on those additional energy burdens. And that is a problem. How we address that, I, I'm not an expert. I, I don't know, but I would recommend that we, you know, stage one, make sure what you've got is what you think you have and what it was, what you had originally intended it to be. Then look at doing upgrades in ventilation, look at doing upgrades in filtration and above and beyond that, consider implementing advanced, you know, indoor air quality technologies that can be cost effectively applied that may make either improved and increased ventilation and filtration or existing ventilation and filtration more effective at doing what it is it's trying to do in creating a healthier, safer, and more productive indoor environment. Yeah, I think that even that first step is kind of sometimes lost. Just, just the idea of just go in and find out what's working right now and what's not working more importantly. And from there, you can kind of start to develop a plan and you can start to see which of these upgrades are actually feasible for your, your facility and the ones that are not, how can we use technology to at least get the same outcome, hopefully in, in an energy efficient way um, that'll require you know more calculations and things like that. But yeah, it seems to be a very viable plan of attack there. Um, well, you know, and I mentioned, and I mentioned earlier, you know, we have a billion dollar plus sick building industry every year. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> you know, it ain't mm -hmm. going away. Uh, mm -hmm. And perhaps it, it could be suggested that maybe what we're doing isn't necessarily everything we, we should or could do. And moving forward, I think we have to make some substantial changes. We have to work on, on fixing the stuff that's, that's always been bad. And then we have to work at making the stuff we're doing moving forward more effective, mm -hmm. making it better. Understood, totally. So to recap, the main tips for trying to adopt one of these new technologies is to, one, get something that works, something that says that it or does what it says it's going to do, 
with proof of efficacy from the manufacturer or for some some other kind of data source. And then hopefully a company that's been around for you know a long time and has some has upheld a standard that you can trust. When I've um, done research into this technology and spoken to other people, I've seen that one of the ways that are sometimes suggested for getting your own proof of efficacy is through other data-centric IAQ technologies like continuous air quality monitoring, things that you can install in your own building to kind of get your own data from. Do you have a stance on this real-time air quality monitoring for proving the efficacy of? Oh, I, I do. I, in fact, I, I have my own in my house. <laughs> you know, I monitor my own air quality. I look at temperature and relative humidity, of course, carbon dioxide. I look at particle counts. Mm-hmm. I look at VOCs. I look at things, things of those nature, and I think that's very important. I can speak more specifically to the needlepoint bipolar ionization technology that we that we promote. Um, we most certainly recommend we impart ions to the air. So not only can you measure and count ions that are imparted to the air to make sure they're there. But you can also look at doing things like looking at particle count reductions. Because these ions agglomerate particles in the space through electrostatic attraction, make them bigger, make them more movable, make them easier to filter, you will actually see reductions in particle counts based on imparting this technology to the building. That's one great way to make sure that the air is cleaner because as I mentioned, everything in the air is a particle or a gas. And those particles can be the viruses and the pathogens and the smokes and the allergens and the things like that that I don't wanna be breathing. So if I can get rid of them and I can count and show reductions in those particle counts, I can get them out of the air and they're not in the air I'm breathing, they can't hurt me. It's a pretty simple concept. That's clean room technology. That's what clean rooms have done for years. In addition to that, though, you may want to look at the remediation of certain volatile organic compounds or VOCs in the air that you're breathing. A VOC is, is simply atoms that are bound together molecularly, electrically, to create certain compounds, certain certain volatile organic compounds. Might be things like cleaning agents. Right now, you know, we're, we're going around cleaning office buildings and jails and schools six times a day. And we used to do it once a, once a day or twice a week. And, and some of these chemicals, regardless if it says green on the label or not, they may be emitting certain volatile organic compounds or chemicals into the air that we're breathing. And we don't want those there. So if you employ a technology that can help remediate those, that's a big deal too. And that, that most certainly can be measured. I can measure particles. I can measure VOCs. It's hard right now to measure viruses. There are technologies out there that I'm told can do it, but you have to take a sample and send it in and they have to send it back. And by then, you know, who knows, who knows what's happened. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a little bit of an issue. But at the end of the day, if you're working at, at agglomerating and removing the particles from the space and the viruses are a particle, that goes a long way to helping ensure that, you know, you've done everything you can to, again, social distance the susceptible from the issues of concern in the air. And I'm all for those kind of measurements. I think it's very important. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, we've, we've run some studies in the past on different built environments, universities and stuff like that. And we have seen the reduction of VOC concentrations when using needlepoint bipolar ionization. So that is one kind of proxy to the actual air cleaning that's going on with regards to the contaminants or viruses or things like that. So yeah, it seems to be a pretty compelling case right there. Yeah. And the particle count reduction studies that we have and that we have done and that clients have done and given us access to have been astounding with regards to, you know, how much we can actually get out of that cubic foot of air. We, we start whittling away at that 18 to 20 million particles per cubic foot quite drastically. Mm-hmm.
Great, great. Before we kind of end out here, did, did you have anything else that you thought would be valuable to the audience to share? Anything else that you, you'd like to cover before I kind of um, end off here? I think we've covered a lot of ground. I will say that while we don't know a lot yet about the actual SARS-CoV-2 virus itself and, and its transmission from a standpoint of when you expel those respiratory aerosols, how many virons are in those droplets or those droplet nuclei, nor do we know when a susceptible host inhales them, how many it takes to infect them, right? That's stuff we don't really know yet, and it may be a while before we do. But what's interesting is how much we have actually learned about how SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted within the indoor environment. And what we are being told that's quite interesting by science and by certain authorities putting out information um, on reducing the issues within built environments is, as I mentioned earlier, it appears that the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself is not necessarily getting back to an HVAC system to be transmitted through the HVAC system. There is a lack of evidence showing that this is occurring, which simply means that the issue may be remaining in the space. And that if we want to, if we want to be effective at helping remediate that issue, we need to start in the space and we need to actively treat the issues in the space and work there to whittle away and trying to reduce the, the issue with regards to how much is there. And again, creating a better environment for people so that there's less issues of that virus in the space itself. Yeah, absolutely. Great. This has been uh, quite the masterclass here. Information that I don't think a lot of people have looked into in depth. So I think that you've brought a great perspective here. And one thing I like to do to kind of end off these episodes is to ask you kind of on a kind of maybe more general scale, do you have three tips or three principles for the audience to ensure that their, their buildings are safer and more efficient for years to come? I, I think the general recommendations that have been made by the CDC and others are pretty solid. You know, mm -hmm. number one, keep sick people out, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that makes all the sense in the world. Somebody walks up to the front door, and I think most people are trying to do that. You stop them. You ask them, you know, do you feel sick? Have you been sick? Have you been around someone that's sick? Usually the answer is no. They may have, and they don't know it. Then you take their temperature. And hopefully it's, it's normal, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee they're not sick. And then you make sure that they're wearing a good tight-fitting mask when they walk through the door for the first time. And you limit their distance from others, maybe by just limiting the number of people that are allowed to occupy the space. Maybe you go to half occupancy or something of that nature. So you create those social distancing barriers. You know, you clean surfaces and things of that nature. All of that's important. And then above and beyond that, I think it's important to look at the air because as human beings in the space, there's nothing I can, I can't run around with a butterfly net and, and pull all the bad stuff out of the air. I just can't do it. There's nothing I can do physically as a human to interact with what's in the air. So we need to look at creating healthier, I'll just say better HVAC systems, ventilation, filtration, advanced IAQs technology that can do that for us, that can work on the air and the environment around us and help layer on that additional social distancing that we ourselves are not capable of providing. We need to have that done for us. And again, none of that is, is, is a sure-fired way to guarantee that when you walk into a space, if someone is in the space and is sick, you're not infected. There's just nothing... We, we just can't guarantee that, but we can certainly do everything we can to try to help ensure that, you know, what I call HVAC social distancing is a methodology that can be most effective when employed properly. 
Awesome. Well, this has been this has been great. I really appreciate you joining us today, and I'm sure that the audience will get a lot of value out of what you've been able to bring to the table today. So, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Just for the audience, um, if you want to catch this episode or other episodes of the Build Smart Podcast with Claire, you can check it out wherever you view your podcasts: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all of those. And if you'd like more information about Claire, um, you can visit our website at i-claire.com. Again, this was Mr. David Shirk from Global Plasma Solutions. And thank you. We'll be talking to you soon. I hope so. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.